So um, we're going to do MS this morning. Some of you um, may have little exposure. Some of you may have a lot of exposure. So I'm going to cover the gamut of what we believe is the current state of affairs in MS. But before we get started, so this is my disclosures, um, we are going to discuss everything from soup to nuts. You know, how do we make a diagnosis? What are the underlying pathophysiology? Some of the therapies, I'll do that fairly briefly, but give you the more important aspects of how we monitor patients when they're on treatments, what you guys may have to think about and look for, um, and then kind of where we're going in the future, um, how do we, you know, improve adherence to treatments, et cetera. All right, so um, just so, you know, we have a pretty small group here, so we can be very informal. So if you have any questions along the route and you raise your hand, I will call on you and we can chat. So feel free to ask questions. So bottom line is MS is a lifelong disease. It's, um, we think of it as a inflammatory condition, but it also has a degenerative component that over time people evolve with increasing disability, and it can affect pretty much all the systems of the central nervous system, motor, sensory, balance, coordination, but other things such as cognition, um, vi uh, vision, speech, and patients will have issues with bladder or bowel issues. And ultimately, you know, these affect their day-to-day -day world, leads to uh, mobility issues. You see a lot of patients who may end up in wheelchairs, et cetera. But some of the aspects to this that are somewhat not really appreciated are the aspects of um, how anxiety-producing it can be for patients because they don't know when they're going to get an attack. It can happen at any point. They may lose their vision. They may lose their ability to um, work or to even be able to you know, carry out meaningful relationships with people. So these are all important components to this. So something that really you know, we try and take seriously, but you have to kind of coordinate all aspects of this when we take care of MS. So just a little bit of background in the demographics. So we believe, and this number is probably higher than what I'm going to tell you, but we say you know, greater than 900,000, maybe over a million people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with MS. We used to say it was just about 350,000, but over the last couple of years, we've actually done a better job at ascertaining what that number is, and it's over a million in the U.S., and it's probably higher than that. Now, when you've done autopsy studies, we've actually seen that people go through their life and they have zero symptomatology, they die, and during an autopsy, somebody said, you know, this person's brain looks like they've had MS their whole life, and they never knew about it. And that's because when you look at what happens with inflammation in the brain, you can have areas that kind of take over function, so it may be silent clinically for that individual patient, and when they hit a pathway that is actually clinically relevant, people experience symptoms, all right? But that isn't always the case. Most patients will present between the ages of 15 and 50, but we do have pediatric cases. We see a very small percent of them, but the reality is it can affect kids as young as two, three, four, five years old, and we see that at our children's hospital. And we're also starting to see that people will present later in life, people in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s for the first time presenting with a clinical event. And some of that has to do with the idea that, you know, they could have gone their whole life and died, and then you would have said that this was asymptomatic MS. But sometimes they go 10, 20, 30 years without any symptoms, but they're accruing lesions, and they don't really, you know, 
um, bring the, this to the attention of the physician so they don't work it up. And then maybe in their 60s or so, they may present with a uh, attack that shows up in a clinically relevant pathway, and that's why they end up being diagnosed as a later date. We don't usually see people, um, you know, with a single event showing up in their 60s or 70s necessarily, but usually you can see that they've had disease for years prior. All right, so male to female ratio, we say about three to one women to men ratio. Um, and that seems to be increasing. As you look at the age span, you see in the youngest population, that number may actually be closer to four to one. But as they get, as you look at people older, when you get into their 50s and 60s, it, the ratio is closer to a one-to-one. -one. You don't really see um, a huge female predominance at that point. So that's uh, predominantly the white population, but we see this in increasing as the planet becomes kind of a, uh, a local town, so to speak the number of patients that we're starting to see with other ethnicities is increasing as well. And in terms of lifespan, we used to say it doesn't really affect your lifespan, but in reality, it probably does. Not, not to a huge degree, but we see that it may be about um, five to 10 years um, of years taken off of life for people. And some of that has to do with the amount of disability that they have and then dying of disability-related complications, whether it be, you know, immobility issues, et cetera. All right, and so we define people at this point as having either relapsing disease or progressive disease. Phenotypes. So we put people into the category of relapsing disease, and in the relapsing category, you have relapsing remitting, and you also have people who can be in a category of secondary progressive MS with relapses. So the, what, what it looks like uh, you know, when we try and phenotype these people, if you look at somebody who's had their first event, we call that clinically isolated syndrome. Okay, so this is their first event. They do not meet the criteria for multiple sclerosis. You need at least two events. So we characterize them as having clinically isolated syndrome. Well, you know, you could say, okay, somebody had an optic neuritis where they lost vision in their eye. So that would be their first event. You do a brain MRI scan and you can see that they've had other lesions somewhere else at other time points. But you might put these people into the category of high risk to develop MS, even though they've only had one event. After they've had their second event, and I'll tell you a little bit more about how we make this diagnosis, but after they've had their second event, we can then characterize, characterize them as having relapsing remitting MS. And after they've had the disease for years, the disease moves into a progressive phase where slowly over time people accrue more neurologic dysfunction and disability, and they just get worse. You usually see it as a function of ambulation where their walking just becomes slowly worse. And that's when they move into the secondary progressive population. Okay, so they went from a relapsing. We'll say they started out as CIS, they had an attack, they became relapsing. Now they move five, 10, 20 years later and they're progressing, so we call that secondary progressive MS. Now there are a small percent, maybe about 10% of the population who never have clinical attacks. They just slowly progress from onset. And that's usually what we call a myelopathy, where they just slowly get worse with their walking. You know, people describe that they had, you know, uh, 
fatigue initially when they were out in the hot sun or, you know, things like that, and their legs felt weak, and then you see this evolve over years. That is what we call primary progressive MS. And it's primary because it never had relapses prior. And there's an entity that we don't recognize yet as part of the MS spectrum, which is called radiologic isolated syndrome. What that is, is that when we look at a patient, so somebody comes into the hospital or comes into the office, they've had uh, headaches. And you decide to get them an MRI scan of their brain. And their MRI shows white matter lesions in their brain, which is not uncommon in general. In the, as you look at the older population, you may see more of it. But they're characteristic of MS lesions. They have a particular signature. They look like MS lesions. But the patients had zero complaints. They never had any symptoms of any sort. All they have is headaches. And you look at that scan, you go, boy, that really looks like MS, but they've never had any complaints. Well, you can't call that MS. You can call it radiologic isolated syndrome, which is what we are doing. And the reason, you know, I don't want you to be thinking that Every patient who's in their 50s or if you've had MRI scans and, you know, they found white matter lesions in your brain, that doesn't mean that you are at increased risk to develop MS. There are very characteristic signatures of the scans that we say look like MS compared to people who have migraine headaches, people who have um, hypertension, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, etc. So that's just the terminology that we use. All right, so from this point... We have, um, what do we define people over time? All right, so over time we'll say, so we've made a diagnosis, and now as time goes with whatever diagnosis, we want to make a determination if somebody's active with this disease or inactive. And the reason for that is when we put people on treatments these days, the treatments are supposed to suppress disease activity both clinically from attacks and radiologically from the accrual of new lesions on their scans. So that's very important when we're trying to put this together. So we define them as uh, either whether they have new lesions on their scan, and there's a variety of MRI metrics that we use, including new T2 lesions, or organ-enhancing lesions, et cetera. Um, and then we also have this category of progressing or not. So active can be either clinical attacks or new MRI lesions across the board for all the phenotypes of MS, but in the population who are progressors, so secondary progressive or primary progressive, we use terminology of whether or not they are continuing to progress or are they stable. And years in the past, we didn't have treatments for the progressive form of MS, but we are starting to evolve that conversation, so we have some now that actually have been shown to be beneficial, and I'll touch on those in a, in a little bit. So we can now use this terminology. So it's important for us when we're making determinations if somebody's on a treatment, whether the treatment is getting the job done. And this is just kind of um, going over a little bit about um, what I, what I uh, talk about for the progressive phase of the disease. What's a little different here is that we think that during the progressive phase of the disease, there's more of a degenerative component of the disease. So the disease kind of evolves and uh, you just kind of like lose neurons in the central nervous system. 
whereas in the relapsing phase of the disease, there are these waves of inflammation that come into the central nervous system. And then as you get older, your repair mechanisms kind of degrade and you are no longer able to repair any longer and you just get this progression over time. So to start with, we don't know what causes it. So from a genetic standpoint, these are some of the thoughts here as to what causes MS, right? So from a genetic standpoint, there are a variety of genes that have been looked at. And we don't have a specific set, but we do have the identification that there are several genes that are immune response genes that seem to be responsible for the risk of developing MS in a population. It's a small risk, and there are many genes, and it's probably not one, all right? How do we know that this is uh, even involved in the conversation? So we know that if you look at twin studies, the twin studies have shown that if you are an identical twin, you have a 30% risk to develop MS in the other twin. So if one twin gets MS, 30% likelihood that the other twin will get MS. If you're a fraternal twin, so that's it for identical twins. If you're a fraternal twin, the risk is about 2 to 3%. Okay, so not that high. So there's a genetic piece to that on the identical twin side of things. We also know that in families, you can actually have multiple family members that can develop MS, and we also know that they can develop other autoimmune conditions. And other autoimmune conditions might be, you know, type 2 diabetes, uh, any of the things like lupus or RA, or you may find that in up to 15% of the population in that family. And so we know there's a component to it, but it has to be more than just that. There has to be an environmental piece to it. And we don't know what that environmental piece is, but there are several things that have been contributors to this. So in the environmental piece, we'd say, well, maybe it's a virus. Maybe somebody gets a virus with the proper genetic background, and they develop MS. We've been looking for viruses for many years, and we have not been able to find any. All right. So... Epstein-Barr virus is an interesting virus because if you look at the population of MS, you will see that the, um, the general population has about a 90% exposure to Epstein-Barr virus, but the um, MS population is 100%. So that tells us something. We also know that clinical mono is very highly expressed. If they've had a history of clinical mono, they have a much higher risk to develop MS. And that's caused by Epstein-Barr. So maybe there's a component to that particular virus. We haven't, you know, figured out any more to that at this point. But other things to consider at this point are environmental factors like cigarette smoking. So cigarette smoking increases the risk to develop MS. Cigarette smoking is bad in many other domains, but also for a specific population of MS patients, it increases their disease activity, it increases their likelihood of dying of MS. It also increases their rate of conversion from relapsing to secondary progressive MS. Other environmental factors include vitamin D. So vitamin D in the MS population is very low. And we're actually doing clinical trials right now that are looking to see whether or not giving exogenous vitamin D and bringing their levels up is actually beneficial as a disease-modifying treatment, right? And the host of other small issues, um, you know, we've 
we've been tackling the idea that a virus could have been important, vitamin D can be important, but what we found, interestingly enough, is if you look across the planet and you look at where MS occurs, you don't see MS along the equatorial region. You move away from the equator in a distribution that increases risk as you move away from the equator. So if you look at, you know, Florida versus Canada, Canada has a much higher rate than Florida. All right? So there might be some gradient there. And we thought, okay, well, so maybe there's a virus that lives in those regions and you don't really see it in the equatorial regions. Well, that may be in part true. But there's other, the piece called the vitamin D and sun exposure. And that may be another contributor to this. So this is a work in progress. I'm not going to tell you we know the answer to this. But ultimately what we're dealing with at this point is the fact that the immune system somehow gets activated. And during the activation process of maybe it's a virus that we haven't identified somewhere in the central nervous system, the immune system's coming in there to go ahead and clean it out. If that's the case, that'd be nice, but that isn't what we know yet. We know that many components of the immune system are involved here. All right? That includes B cells, T cells, monocytes. They migrate into the central nervous system. They cause inflammation. That inflammation causes neurologic symptoms. So depending upon where this inflammation is occurring in the brain or spinal cord will lead to symptoms. And then with time, the immune system regulates to some degree. That kind of shrinks down in that region and people will recover. But what ends up happening is the immune system releases a whole variety of substances that are toxic to the neurons and to the axons and to the oligodendrocytes that make, that make myelin, and it causes demyelination. And that is what is, what is the most important aspect of why people have neurologic dysfunction. The immune system comes in, you get demyelination. The demyelination causes the inability to connect signals between two areas of the nerve cells and they get dysfunction. So from a diagnostic standpoint, so somebody needs to present with one event, okay? Right now you can't do it with just the radiologic piece. You need at least an event, a single event. So, you know, people have numbness and tingling all the time. I'm sure you hear this in the office. Somebody comes in, they say, my arm's numb. Well, you know, you say, well, maybe you slept on it or maybe you injured it or something happened. Well, in any event, so you need an event. So that's the clinical piece. And it has to be somewhat consistent with what you would think would be a central nervous system problem, not a peripheral nerve problem. All right? We do blood work to rule out a variety of other things, depending upon where you practice in the country, you know, whether it's Lyme disease somewhere else, or maybe it's a vitamin deficiency or whatever. We do the blood work stuff to make sure it's nothing else. The single most important test that we have to offer patients is an MRI scan. And the MRI scan should be of the region of the body for which you believe is the most important. The brain is the most sensitive. But if somebody presents to you with numbness in both legs, we need to look at the spinal cord. And the spinal cord, you know, depends upon what cervical or thoracic spinal cord. You don't have to necessarily look at the lumbar region because the lumbar region isn't central nervous system any longer. It's peripheral nerves. So what we do is we'll order a cervical or thoracic spine and a brain. And then if you see something there that you're concerned about for the possibility of MS, then we go ahead and we look at other tests. And we'll maybe look at the spinal fluid, 
we look for something called oligoclonal bands. And um, we may do some additional tests looking at electrical studies. We call them evoked potentials. We'll look to see if we see any slowing of conduction in any of those pathways. And we look at vision, hearing, and sensation through the arms and legs. So that's kind of what we do. Now, when you think about how we have evolved this conversation, um, and this is actually uh, 2010 diagnostic criteria, we actually moved this into a more recent uh, iteration, which does not require us to be um, this specific criteria. We actually have loosened it up even further. But here's what I'll just tell you is most important about it. So if somebody presents to you with one event and they had a couple lesions on their brain MRI and none of them were active, you could say that's clinically isolated syndrome. You are at risk to develop MS, but you don't have MS at this point. I should tell you that we've done clinical trials with patients with that, with the CIS category, and it's been very beneficial to start people on treatment from that stage. We also know that if you use the classic criteria of clinical uh, relapsing, remitting MS patients and put them on treatment, it's beneficial for that. But we asked the question for the clinically isolated syndrome, knowing that we can treat these people and it has a benefit in preventing further attacks and preventing new lesions, do, when, when do we need to look for another event to call it MS? So we set up MRI criteria to be able to do this. And we said, if we do an MRI scan three months later and you see new lesions on the MRI scan, that's enough to say this is their multiple sclerosis, meaning their second event is a new lesion on their MRI scan in three months. But then we asked the question, could you go even earlier than that? Can you go after a single scan? So somebody gets one event, you do a single MRI scan, you see lesions on their scan, but if you give gadolinium and you see lesions that are actively enhancing now and you see older lesions on the scan that are not active, that gives you that time component. Because what our definition requires is that you have separation in both space and in time. Space, two areas of the central nervous system, could be the brain, spinal cord, or just within the brain. And time, which we used to say was either a second clinical event, then we said, well, if you show me a new lesion on an MRI scan after three months, that's good enough. Now we say, if you can show me an active lesion and an inactive lesion on a single MRI scan, you can make a diagnosis from day one. So this has really helped us in our ability to get people on treatment much earlier. So we don't have to wait around for people to have events and then, you know, they have a bad attack and can't walk or something. All right, so the progressive forms are a little more challenging to deal with in terms of the, um, how we can define them because this is a population of patients that slowly get worse over time. And over time means about a year or two. So you may see them in the office and they're having, you know, some difficulty walking, they're dragging their leg and people think it's back problems. And you do an MRI scan, you see that they have some lesions in their spinal cord. So we've set up criteria to be able to give us the capability to make a diagnosis for this population. We used to say you have to wait at least a year and we've kind of moved that away because you now have the ability to look at imaging of the spinal cord. It's gotten better. We can look at their spinal fluid. So if you can hit on these 
met metrics, you can make a diagnosis of progressive MS as well. But this one, I have to be honest, is the most challenging for us to make a diagnosis because these people who present later in life, they present in their 50s and 60s, have other comorbidity issues, like they may have a brain MRI scan that you look at and you see a whole bunch of white spots, but that could be from their hypertension or diabetes or other medical issues. So this is where spinal fluid can be really helpful, and this is where spinal cord imaging can be very helpful. So if you see lesions in the spinal cord, generally speaking, you're worrying more for MS than anything else. All right. I'm going to move into the therapeutic arena at this point. So we take an approach to treating MS somewhat holistically. For one, ultimately we want to reduce clinical attacks. We want to prevent new lesions on their MRI scans. So this is the, the realm of disease um, management. But in addition, we have a variety of things that we know we can offer people particularly things um, that they can do lifestyle changes. So things like um, stop smoking, manage your hypertension, you know, make sure your diabetes is under control. Many of these other medical comorbidities contribute to worsening of MS. So we have to make sure that all of these other components are being managed adequately as well. Make sure you're getting rid of the cigarette smokers. Make sure they're taking enough vitamin D, things like that. Um, so we'll deal with that as a separate issue. Then we have the issue of preventative strategy with these medications that we have. Symptomatic treatments, and the symptomatic treatments may be dealing with things like as, you know, bladder dysfunction, pain, spasticity, cognitive complaints, fatigue. Those are all part of MS, so we'll deal with those as symptomatic treatments. And when we get into this conversation about coming up with the disease-modifying treatments for MS, these are the ones that alter the course of the disease, we get into a dialogue with patients that we call shared decision-making, or SDM. And this is important because you would say, well, you know, I'm the doctor, I know best, you don't know, so therefore you have to listen to me. It doesn't work that way. I mean, sure. It used to work that way to some degree, but, you know, now in, the, in today's world, patients are becoming more educated. They go out on the Internet. They talk to their friends in these social media groups, and they come to you with lots of questions and lots of uh, information. So it's important for us because, and you'll hear a little bit later, that we have to deal with the components of adherence to treatments, and we know that if people don't take the medication, they're not going to do as well. So here... When you can get somebody on a treatment that they feel like they've been involved in the decision-making process, you're more likely to gain um, a buy-in there and they're going to be more adherent. All right, so this is kind of looking at the first wellness approach, that this is what they need to do on a, on a regular basis. And I mentioned the things such as, you know, making sure that um, they um, are exercising regularly, manage and monitor their weight, um, the smoking cessation is very important. The diet piece, I'm going to tell you, I don't think we know enough about this yet. You will probably hear in the next five to ten years that diet is really, really important in all of medicine, something that we have not really been dealing with yet. We're learning all about the microbiome, and it's very important in the inflammatory conditions. But we're not there yet. We can't tell people yet, 
you need to take this kind of probiotic, you need to, you know, not eat this kind of food or any of these things. But it's going to happen. I'm telling you right now. Um, monitoring your blood pressure, diabetes, all, all that kind of stuff. Really, really important. Um, so let's talk now about the therapeutics of these disease-modifying treatments. So these are the ones that we have done clinical trials with, and they've all been able to show reduction in clinical attack rate frequency, the severity of the attacks, hospitalizations, as well as new lesions on their MRI scan and slowing the rate of disability progression. So we have treatments now that can actually be beneficial. Now, that being said, there's all sorts of adverse events associated with these drugs, some of which are, you know, injectable drugs, so there's pain, there could be, you know, concerns of needles, uh, but then there's a whole bunch of other pieces to this, which are, you know, what are the safety concerns with some of these drugs? Some of them have some very significant risks. So that's another piece. Cost is important because these drugs are super expensive for no good reason, but they are super expensive. So we have to take into consideration all the pieces of their world. Can they afford the medication? Other issues that we say are important to us as the practicing doctor to say, I think you need to be on a strong drug because I'm worried about the amount of neurologic dysfunction you have today, the amount of lesions I see on the MRI scan. I need to put, this, I need to put you on a treatment that's very aggressive. So these are all components that we take into account here. But like I said, shared decision-making is very important because you may say, I need you to be on this, and their insurance company says, I'm sorry, we're not going to approve that drug. You have to fail this, this, and this before we put you on that medication. And I got to tell you, as a big MS center that we practice in, this is not trivial. We have an army of people that have to deal with this stuff because the insurance industry says, no, for no good reason other than cost. We say, you need to be on this because this is what the disease warrants at this point. And they don't realize that the cost in the long term of having these patients lose their job, uh, lose their function in day-to-day -day world is going to ultimately cost more because they become more disabled. Um, so these are, these are things we're trying to deal with at this point. All right, but when you also look at this, you have to deal with the issues of risk tolerance. What is the patient's risk tolerance? Now, right now, I haven't told you any risks yet. I'll get into it in a minute. But what are the patient's risk tolerance to taking a medication? They worry about cancers and infections and these kind of things. And they're all important here. Tolerability. How is it going to affect their day-to-day -day world? You know, if they're going to have nausea or, or, you know, other kind of issues. All right. So from a therapeutic standpoint, we say treat as early as possible because we know that if you delay the onset of treatment, People accrue neurologic dysfunction. We cannot get that back. That's been clear in every clinical trial that we have done to date, that once you've accrued neurologic dysfunction, we might be able to stop going forward, but we can't recover what we lost. So very important that we treat as early as possible. We treat the disease phenotype, and I'll mention, you know, a little bit more about what we believe are good prognostic features that we can make determinations. Um, but getting the buy-in from patients, very, very important. So when we look at 
an individual patient, we're making a decision that here's something, I, I need to get this under control. Well, let's, let's look at what some of the prognostic factors might be that help determine this conversation. So African-Americans don't do as well as Caucasians. The older age don't do as well as younger. Males don't do as well as females. If you smoke, that's bad. If you present with a progressive phase, that's not particularly good. And the ones that are particularly important to us are how do they clinically present? If they present with some sensory dysfunction, like an optic neuritis or some numbness, they do better than people who present with motor or cerebellar. And if they present with brainstem or spinal cord disease, that's much worse than if they present with um, cerebral lesions or things like that. And one of the pieces that I think is most important to us is what is the volume of lesions that we see? So somebody who has one or two little lesions in the brain that isn't really causing them too much problems, not a big deal. Somebody who presents with 50 or 70 lesions in their brain, you worry. Somebody who presents with five spinal cord lesions, you worry. So these are all the pieces of this that we make determinations and say, okay, so here's somebody I gotta put on the strongest drugs that carry the greatest risk, but are gonna get the job done before it gets any worse than where it is right now. All right, so rationale for this. We know that once the damage has occurred within the central nervous system, the tissue is not gonna recover. So this is, you know, we've done all these clinical trials, we've done the CIS clinical trials, we've done the relapsing trials. Every data point that we've done to date has all shown that if you treat early, you're gonna do better than if you delay the treatment. And that's because the tissue lost is lost. All right. This is the landscape of what we currently have, really starting with the first approved drug in 1993. I don't expect you guys to know all the details of what the timeline for this looks like, but I'm gonna mention the individual drugs as classes to go over some of the important salient features there. So let's start with the injectable drugs to start with. So the, back in 1993, beta serum was the first drug that became available for the treatment of MS. Since then we have Many other medications that have come that are injectable treatments, just as highlights, interferons as a class cause some side effects, not huge side effects, mainly injection site reactions and some flu-like symptoms. Not a big deal. You have to monitor your liver and blood counts to some degree as well. Fairly effective, we call it modest, and the benefit was roughly about a 30% reduction in clinical attacks somewhere around the 50 to 60% range in preventing new lesions on the MRI scan and slowing the rate of disability progression by about 25 to 30%. So modest, but effective. Glutamur acetate came a few years later and similar in that it's an injectable therapy. It started out as a daily injection. They moved to a new preparation at a higher dose, which is now three times a week. I should tell you that the interferons in terms of administration come in either three times a week regimens, once a week, or once every two week regimens. And there are different dosing strategies there. So all of these pretty similar effects in terms of their benefit. 
and fairly safe. Now, the glutamyl acetate, this is probably the safest of all the drugs because it doesn't really have too much of an effect on your liver or your blood counts. And we even use it in the pregnancy conversation to some degree. We don't stop this medication necessarily. You can, but you don't need to. And um, the interferons recently have been looked at some pregnancy registries and also look like they're pretty safe for pregnancy if you wanted to continue it as well. No immunosuppression. All right, so these have benefits. They have some side effects, but from a safety standpoint, very safe. All right, so the no immunosuppression conversation I'm showing you here is very important because as we get into some of the newer drugs, there is more immune suppression, which give us a little bit more pause about uh, pregnancy issues, et cetera. All right, so when we then in 2010, the first available oral drug was fingolimod, sphingosine-1-phosphate uh, receptor modulator. So this drug worked by primarily um, reducing the migration of lymphocytes out of lymph nodes. It's important for you guys because if you were going to look at the patients on injectable therapies and you got blood tests routinely for their liver blood count, you wouldn't really see much. For this drug, if you monitor a CBC, you're going to see their lymphocyte counts may be super low, maybe, you know, 300, 500, and you're already worried, oh, my God, does my patient have something wrong? So the way this drug works is it traps those circulating blood lymphocytes in the lymph nodes so their blood lymphocyte counts are really low. That's the mechanism of the drug. No concerns in that conversation. We've looked at to see whether or not there were any correlation with the risk of infections. And there have been significant infections with this drug and some of the other ones, but not correlative to the blood count. All right, so people have developed PML with this medication. It's actually up to uh, 20 cases of PML at this point, cryptococcal infections as well. So we see this. There's a whole host of safety monitoring to get somebody on this medication. You've got to do six hours of cardiac monitoring in the office for their first dose. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'll just tell you that it is an issue. More recently, we have another drug, which is the second generation of this one called saponamod, which does not require you to have that six hours of, of monitoring in the doctor's office. There's a dose escalation strategy. It's a little bit safer in that regard. I'll move on to teraflutamide. So teraflutamide is very similar to the drug leflunamide. So this is the active ingredient in, lef, in leflunamide. It gets converted to teraflutamide. And um, we call this abagio. It's administered as a daily pill once a day. The fingolimide is also once a day. This one carries a category X, which we're no longer even using that terminology, but in any event, not a good idea for people who are going to get pregnant, all right? Um, Fingolimod, also we aren't happy about people being on it during pregnancy. We might even say before you are going to go ahead and try and get pregnant, you should come off this drug for a couple of months and wash it out. Dimethylfumarate, twice daily medication. Um, main side effects for this one are gastrointestinal side effects. So some people have some nausea, a little abdominal discomfort, tolerability issues. Um, 
There have been some cases, not a lot, six cases of PML with this one. And if you guys don't remember what PML is, it's progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML for short, which is a viral infection of the brain. You see it not uncommonly in the cancer population or in the HIV population. And so the reason why you're seeing that is that these oral drugs can cause immune suppression. That immune suppression is going to put them at increased risk for these kinds of conditions. So pieces here, from the standpoint of the effectiveness of these particular compounds, 50% reduction in clinical relapses, 70% reduction in new MRI lesions, and around 30 to 35% reduction in clinical disability progression. So a notch up compared to the injectable drugs in terms of its benefit. And now we get into what we call the second-line parenteral. So these are the drugs that are intravenous, and they're more effective across the board. All of the infusible agents are more effective. They get you up to somewhere close to 70% reduction in clinical relapses, 90 to 95% reduction in new lesions on the MRI scan, and up to 40% reduction in disability progression. So now we're into a higher efficacy conversation. They're administered at a different frequency, so natalizumab is every month intravenous. Alemtuzumab is administered really for five days intravenously, and the next year you do another three days, and you're done with this drug. You don't give it anymore. Now, what are the concerns with these drugs? So, efficacy-wise, they're very effective. Safety-wise, you look at the first one, natalizumab, which is done every month. This one has over 800 cases of PML, not just five or 20. This has over 800 cases of PML. So this is a significant risk. But we do have the ability now to monitor risk for this medication. There's a blood test called the JC virus antibody assay. So JC virus is the virus that causes PML. So we can actually do this blood test. And if it's a negative test, their risk is really, really low. We'd say one in 10,000 or, or even lower than that. If they're positive but have a low index, we'd say they're still pretty low risk, and we can continue the medication. But if they get above a certain level, we say the risk is too high, we're unwilling to use this drug any longer and put them on something else. Alemtuzumab has a variety of other issues. So this drug, even though it's very effective, you have concerns of what we call secondary autoimmunity. So these are conditions where people then will develop autoimmune thyroid disease. They may develop autoimmune kidney disease um, and even ITP. And because of that, when the drug got approved, the FDA said you're going to go ahead and you're going to have to monitor patients for at least four years after their last treatment. So this is the one that they get five days and then the next year you get three days and you're done. So after that, for the next four years after that, every month you need to get blood and urine done because you're looking for these late effects of autoimmune thyroid disease, autoimmune uh, good pastor syndrome, and ITP. And there have been cases of stroke that have now been seen and some cancers. So this is a very effective drug, but definitely carries a different risk profile. 
Ocrelizumab got approved um, just in March of, it's a little over two years now, um, which is the next generation of rituxan, all right? It's a B-cell depleting compound, very effective. It has been a godsend to us in the MS world because it gives us, this is infused every six months, so it's very convenient. It is actually very effective and does not carry the same risk profile of some of the other drugs I just mentioned in terms of the IV infusions. And they've been able to show very effective effects on um, progression as well as relapses as well as preventing new lesions. So it got approved for both relapsing MS and also the first approved drug for primary progressive MS, right? So to date, prior to the approval of this one, we had no drugs approved for progressive form of MS. We might try and use them for some patients, but realistically didn't really have the data to support it. This one was able to show that there was a benefit. And I mean, it's modest. It's only a 25% reduction in disability progression, maybe a little bit better if you look at a, a longer time point. But it's better than nothing for the progressive patients. So it got a primary progressive approval. It does not have a secondary progressive approval, but it does now have a secondary progressive approval if they're having relapses, all right? But not secondary progressive if they're not, but we try and use it anyway. Overall, been pretty safe. We haven't gotten into too much issues here. You get some infusion reactions. There are maybe a slight increased risk of infection, but it's a smaller risk. We don't see a lot of the immunocompromised type of issues. There's a question about whether or, not um, whether or not breast cancer risk is increased with this drug. In the clinical trials, there were a few patients that developed breast cancer that they didn't see in the placebo group or in the comparator rebif group. I'll tell you that I think that it's a question for us in the MS community whether it increases it or not. We recommend that all patients stay up to date with their proper screening for breast cancer. Um, we didn't see this in the rituxan world, so we don't know if this is a real signal or if it's whether it's just the population of people that got studied. All right, I'm going to move on to the last couple of compounds that um, are important. So saponamide I mentioned briefly. This is the next generation of the fingolimod, so it's an oral once-a-day regimen. So interestingly enough, this drug was tested in patients with secondary progressive MS and it was able to show a benefit. Modest, but it was able to be shown. At the end of the day, the FDA gives them the, the approval for patients who have relapsing forms of MS and secondary progressive with relapses, but didn't give them the approval for secondary progressive without relapses, even though the data was there to support it. That being said, the only thing to know about this, which is very similar to the fingolimod world, except for this one requires genetic screening for this particular uh, CYP2 um, phenotype, because if you have a certain allele, you won't be able to metabolize this drug. And then it builds up and they worry about cardiac side effects. This one does not require you to have the six hours of monitoring, but you still could do it if you felt it was indicated. Oral cladribine, this got approved most recently. So this drug is also very convenient. The way it's administered, 
And this is very similar. It's already approved in uh, hairy cell leukemia, but it got an approval um, for MS earlier this year. The convenience aspect of it is you're going to basically give five days of pills. The next month, you give another five days of pills. Then a year later, you give five days, and then another five days a month later, and you're done. So, you know, you're looking at 20 days of pills with this drug, period. And it's very effective. It reduced clinical relapses very nicely, up to 60%, um, slow disability progression, MRI effects, et cetera. So very effective drug. What are the concerns? During the clinical trial development phase, there was a question of whether or not it increased the risk for malignancies. So when the FDA, they put a black box warning that you shouldn't use this drug if a patient has a history of malignancy or if they're at a very high risk for malignancy. But in terms of other aspects, it's fairly safe. I mean, there's lymphopenia that you can see with this one, so it needs to be monitored. But overall, pretty good drug. All right, and these are just some drugs, and there's a whole list of about 25 other things I'm not going to show you today that are in various stages of development. The one piece that we have not addressed at this point is going to be the the issue of repair. Is there anything we have to repair people who've already had problems? We don't have anything at this point. So I'll mention that the, um, the two drugs that are currently in late phase three or even completed phase three are similar to the fingolimod and sapotamod that I mentioned. One is called azanamod and the other one's penicimod. They both have been able to show very effective uh, in relapses, etc. So those are waiting to get an FDA approval in the near future. Generics. So I can tell you we have zero data on whether or not generics are a good idea for MS. We have them for all sorts of other medical conditions. The only ones we have right now that are generic uh, generics are for the glutirimer acetate, and they are on the market. Um, they're not hugely cost-saving, but they are probably equally safe. We don't really know about how beneficial they are in terms of their efficacy. All right, so how do we monitor people? You put them on a drug, how do you monitor them over time? So we know that the drug works best in people who take it, so adherence is very important. We know it reduces relapses. We know it reduces MRI activity and slows the rate of progression. So we use those metrics to determine if somebody is adequately being managed. So if somebody's on a treatment and they have an attack, now you have to ask the question, is this the right drug for them? If somebody has new lesions on their MRI scan, you have to ask, is this the right drug for them? Because we've got 20 different drugs we could work with. So we have many options to play with. So couple of uh, pointers to make here is that if you're, you know, on a drug that is causing side effects, tolerability issues, try and choose an alternative drug in a different category. If they are ineffective, we go to a higher efficacy compound. Going laterally probably doesn't make a lot of sense. We go to something a little bit more potent. Now, the issue of adherence is important in the arena of injectable therapy and pills. We know that injectable issues was a lot of times because people would forget to take their medication. But with pills, people just forget to take their medication also. 
And, you know, in some cases, they don't like the side effects it might give them, such as GI side effects. So these are pieces that we have to deal with. So when we're seeing people in the office and when you're seeing people in the office, you want to ascertain how frequently are they missing their medications. Because when you get into the conversation about is the drug adequate, we want to know that we've assessed adherence. Because you might say, okay, so I see new disease activity on their scans, and here you go, you see new lesions, and you say, I got to move you to something stronger. Stronger may carry more risk. And if we knew that we didn't really have to do that because it was an adherence issue, then you could have maybe gone across laterally in terms of risk and not have to go up in efficacy. So these are important pieces that we have to take into consideration. Here's some of the you know, communication issues that we try and address. In our world, if you have this capability where you have multiple people touching this person's life, which might be the secretaries, it might be the nurses, it might be the pharmacists, it might be the social worker, we have that in an MS program to be able to talk to people from many different arenas and touch that patient. And we may find out, you know what, the person's going through a whole bunch of stuff at work and they're stressed and they're talking to the social worker and we find out they're not taking their medication, right? So having that capability for all these people touching that person's life is very important. We need to figure out how we can talk to our patients to be able to get comfortable. They can tell us whether or not, you know, they're taking the medications, et cetera. All right, another piece to this, because I'm running out of time soon. Another couple pieces to this is when do we make determinations about when a patient is inadequately being managed. So for instance, they start their treatment, it becomes effective six months later, they had a couple of attacks in the first couple of months, is that a reason to change their therapy? The drug hasn't had an effect yet. So at that point you might say, well, let's hang in there. Let's wait, unless you said this is a bad attack and I'm not willing to wait. All right, minor attack, you might be okay. Get a new MRI scan, though, at six months, because any disease activity that came before the drug was effective will potentially not be a good representation of whether that drug's going to ultimately be effective. So if they have attacks after when you believe that drug was effective and you have a new baseline to compare from, now you're going to make a change in their treatment. And what we make a determination when you look at the, we, we look at this as like, you know, dials, you ask relapse dial, progression dial, and MRI dial whether or not any one of these is enough to make a change. And I will tell you, we have moved this farther and farther back to uh, almost not zero, but to the point where we're not willing to let people have relapses at all. We're not really particularly happy about seeing any new lesions on an MRI scan. So we used to say, well, you know, if you had one attack, not a big deal. Now we have 20 drugs, and we're more effective. So we don't let people continue to have disease activity. So, you know, if we just see one new uh, clinical event, we may be making a change right off the bat. All right. So I mentioned we look at their uh, clinical attacks. We look at their MRI. We look at other things. There's an entity we call NIDA, or no evidence of disease activity. We want that to be zero. I can tell you we're not at zero. At best, our drugs are getting close to 40 or 50 percent in the NIDA conversation. We may get better in the near future, but we're not there yet. 
should we stop therapy? So we have these people who are on treatment for, you know, 20, 25 years already, and they're doing well. He's coming to the office and they say, you know, I'm in my 60s now. Can I stop treatment? Do I need to continue this? We don't know the answer to this. We are doing trials. It's called the DISCO trial, where it's a discontinuation trial. We're asking the question, if somebody's over the age of 55, they've been stable for five years with no clinical or MRI activity, can we randomly assign them to come off treatment or continue? And this is a question. We're, in, we're currently you know, trying to answer that, and we don't know. All right, so the clinical conclusions, considered disease, drug, patient factors when we're selecting a DMT, address the risk factors, Smoking, hypertension, all this kind of stuff. Stress adherence. Get your patients to buy into the therapy that they're doing and understand why they're taking it. I have patients who come into the office and tell me, Doc, I've been taking this drug, but I'm no better. They have to understand what the benefit of these drugs are. It's not going to make you better. Hopefully it's going to stabilize you and prevent things from getting worse. So we personalize it as best we can. I mean, that's really what we're looking to do. And we are moving into the conversation of individualized therapy based on the disease that we see, but also we're starting to ask questions about are there genetic pieces, are there microbiome pieces that we need to look at. And this is all going on. I spend the last minute talking to you guys about thinking about how <clears throat> you have to coordinate the care with your neurologist. So you're in the practice and you have, you know, 10 or 20 MS patients. Make sure you cultivate relationships with those neurologists. You can take on a lot of this monitoring. You understand what the drugs are. You understand how to monitor things over time. You can help in this whole conversation so patients get the best possible care because, you know, people don't always have access to the MS specialists in a uh, close proximity. This insurance issue is a huge problem. And that's something that we are trying to address globally and hopefully we'll be able to. Um, and when you look at a, a care coordination checklist, this is a checklist that I think is very helpful to you guys, you know, looking at what is the patient's social environment, physical environment, financial status, cognitive status, you know, how easily can they get into the offices, you know, especially for your patients who are a little bit more disabled. So these are a lot of pieces that you guys can really look at that can make a huge difference to the care of MS patients.